Brendan Urry once said, It's cool to be different and just be who you are and shock people in a good way. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the rule of cool. Today's topic is kind of the cross-section of knowing the rules and letting the players be powerful. So John, what is the rule of cool? The rule of cool is when the DM permits something based not on the hard rules of the system, but on the enjoyment that's going to bring all involved, typically measured in how freaking awesome it is. So, today we're going to talk about ways of implementing the rule of cool, ways the rule of cool has been implemented in the past, and ways not to implement the rule of cool. So let's kind of dive right in. The first thing that we have here is instances of the rule of cool being used in the past. Now, in old school D&D, way back in the bad old days of gaming, there really weren't that many rules. There were a lot of general guidelines of how things should be, But as a general rule, if your character wanted to do something, it was up to the DM to kind of use their own fiat to decide what exactly that would entail as far as dice rolls were concerned. The typical dice roll was roll a d20, and if it's less than your attribute, you're successful. That's really old school. That could have adjustments to it, but as a general rule, it didn't. It was just, uh, okay, roll your dexterity and see what happens. Nowadays, we have games with saving throws, skill checks, and all that, and that changes that a lot but back in the day basically anything you wanted to do it was up to the dm to decide what you had to do to do that and that's kind of what the rule of cool actually is is when the dm decides what needs to be done to do something that is awesome or that falls outside of the standard purviews of how the rules work Now, a good example of how this was codified in the rules is using cool and interesting or unique or foreign weapons. The first example that comes to the top of my head is the scythe. Now, the scythe is not an actual weapon, at least not the Western scythe the way we view it. I'm sure you could use it as a weapon. There's probably some obscure fighting style that's built around it. But by and large, the scythe is not a great weapon. It's definitely not meant to be a weapon. It is a peasant tool for reaping. The reason that it's often used in D&D is because of the relationship it has to the iconic Grim Reaper image. Everyone thinks that the Grim Reaper standing there with his scythe seems like a cool and awesome and terrifying image. And who doesn't want to play a necromancer who uses a scythe? Right, and it ends up giving you that image of the Grim Reaper. You have that relationship between the imagery that evokes such a powerful effect that we want it to work. And so even though in real life it's probably not a practical weapon, it's definitely not a common weapon, and definitely not a weapon that people would take as like large infantry units to war, it still is usable as a weapon, and we can imagine it being usable as a weapon, and it's really cool to let someone use it as a weapon. A counterpoint to this that kind of followed the same theme is the katana. Okay, so right here we have one of the most cool weapons from the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, in my mind, I'm reminded of Highlander. You have Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod wielding a katana that he got from his Egyptian mentor played by a Scotsman who wielded a katana. That movie was really weird. (laughs) 
Well, it's it's a kind of a cultural mashup, which is what makes the katana. The katana is that it's a weapon that required an incredibly intricate degree of craftsmanship, and it's also a, a weapon that's foreign to Western culture. So in a sense, it's a weapon that comes with a history, a story, an idea, and unfortunately, it's been played to death. Katanas are everywhere. It's cool when a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle has a katana. It gets kind of trite when you've got like trench coat dudes walking around with katanas, you know, drinking two liters of Mountain Dew and wearing like, you know, big fedoras trying to impress everyone because what makes things cool to some degree is novelty. And when we start pounding home these things, it, it just, it ends up wearing the novelty out. But katanas are a great example because you can still see the hallmarks of the assumption that they're cool all the way back through gaming history. In the world of darkness, for example, the katana, the old world of darkness, the katana was basically the single best melee weapon in the game. In Dungeons and Dragons 3rd edition, katanas were just bastard swords that were automatically masterwork just by virtue of the method of their construction. In 2nd edition, in 2nd edition, they were just better than the long sword and short sword. They uh, had the same stats as them against medium-sized enemies, but against large enemies, they dealt more damage, which was almost unheard of. And it's actually kind of an interesting imagery because it evokes the idea of samurais fighting these great oni and, and having to slay them. And, and of course, that's what we were trying to go for, is that cool imagery, that thing that resonates with, with us in a cultural way. And that's why scythes are still kind of cool, but I think scythes might actually suffer the same fate. Uh, recently, the series Ruby, uh, the main character of that, she wields a scythe, and I'm wondering if the scythe isn't approaching played out. I think the first time I saw a scythe used in combat in some sort of medium, it was Soul Calibur 3, and that was, I want to say 2005. Uh, yeah, 2005. So so the scythe's had its run. Uh, I think it's on the, on the way out, but I would still totally be down to see characters wielding scythes. I'm just saying. Speaking of the scythe, uh, one of my friends, when I was discussing this topic with him, mentioned that he as a DM is okay with someone using a scythe, but he refuses to use the rule of cool to make the scythe better than what it is. He looks at the stats and goes, all right, third edition, it does two die four points of damage times four on a crit. That's acceptable, but I'm not going to go, oh, and you can trip with it, and you can disarm with it, and you can have reach with it if you use it in a very specific way. He's not going to do that, and that's really kind of where where we want to go. We want to make sure that the rule of cool is rewarding novelty, but not overpowering something in an undue way. Right. It's important that if something is going to be a fixture in your game, that it not be broken or over the top, because then why isn't everyone doing it? Why doesn't everyone wield a scythe? And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid, is everyone being the guy with the katana, which is what ended up happening, is you'd have whole groups where literally everyone in the group has a katana or everyone in the group has a uh, 1911 A1 or things like that. You end up with these iconic weapons that end up appearing everywhere and that's not novel that's not fun that's not interesting and that's why balance is important i remember i remember reading about a group once that they were talking about how one of the dwarves in the group wielded a door as a weapon and they just treat it as a tower shield that was being used as a weapon which is again great encourage your players to do weird things and do the unusual the best way to encourage them is to make the unusual on par with the usual you don't have to and frankly should not make these things more powerful but you should make them viable 
novel because that's what breeds that novelty is the viability of it. When we are talking about rewarding novelty and rewarding interesting play, we often think about how this will encourage players to keep going out of their out of their way to have fun and interesting moments. In the world of darkness, a lot of times John and I will call for a specific role. Another player will then go, "Well, ho- hold on, could I make that check with this skill instead?" The answer most of the time is yes. You, and only you, can make that because you thought of an out-of-the-box way to make this roll. For example, if you want to make if you want to repair your computer, most of the time that's going to be an intelligence plus computers roll in World of Darkness. But if you have someone who just goes, can I just whack it? Can, can I just use strength plus computers to do some percussive maintenance? Yeah, yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly that. Yep, especially if it ends up being a weird role like strength plus computers or composure plus politics or something like that. I like to see when the players can make these unusual combinations suddenly important and I think that that's a neat way of rewarding this novel play but again a big part of that is telling the players that you know yes this time under these circumstances you particularly can do that because what you can end up running up against is just an ever-expanding list of house rules which is definitely not what the rule of cool is supposed to be when we talk about this rule of cool idea we're not talking about compiling a giant compendium of house rules some groups do that and if that works for you that's fine but for the vast majority of people having a giant compendium of house rules is just a gigantic pain in the butt it doesn't help anyone it doesn't make the game better it just makes it confusing and makes it deviate from the game that everyone's experienced with worse yet if anyone plays with other groups this can create a lot of cross chatter between them that makes it difficult for people to have that experience outside of their own group frankly house rules are to be avoided when you're compiling these big lists, especially if it's just a one-time exemption from the rule. Don't codify it into an ongoing rule. That's where you get some problems. Now, another thing that we like using the rule of cool for is at the coolest moment that this character could have. Sometimes something so awesome and amazing happens that you might just forego a dice roll and say, yes, that succeeds, or yes, this happens, just because of how cool it is. The biggest example that I can think of is the classic Dungeons & Dragons story of the Powder Keg of Justice. In the Powder Keg of Justice, a player character came in and was playing a paladin. He was a fallen heir of this kingdom, and they were going along trying to keep the story going when, out of nowhere, this cult is having this ritual, and they need to figure out what's going on. So the group had captured a cultist who was part of a large conspiracy and had planned to torture further information out of him. The paladin, of course, was massively opposed to this, as paladins are, because that's, you know, that's part of his ethos as a paladin. So the group kind of skirts around the idea of actually torturing this cultist while the paladin goes off and gets drunk, uh, mostly to try to uh, get his mind off of the atrocities that his compatriots are definitely committing at this time. But then suddenly the paladin barges back in and announces if you're gonna do it you gotta do it right 
And the paladin sits down and tells the cultists, I don't want to hurt you, but you need to give us this information. And that's the only way that we can make sure that you're safe and cared for. And the cultist, of course, is like, I know you, you runaway child of Father Slayer, you, you paladin, you've taken up the cause of justice and truth and you'll refuse to do any sort of evil act lest you fall. And Sir Peter the paladin says, you seem to be under a misconception about what I am, what I do. I'm a paladin, that's true. But as a paladin, I don't fear falling. I look forward to it. As a paladin, I walk on a razor's edge, not between good and evil. I could never be something like you, but between law and justice. The law I follow doesn't permit me to harm you, but it could be justified in anything I did to you in order to save innocent lives. Anything. But you don't know what it is to be me. You don't know the pain of having to store all your anger, all your fury, all your sense of justice and hold it inside you every day, all day for the rest of your life. Doing the right thing doesn't mean I get to stop all evil. I just get to trim it when it becomes overgrown. The path I walk is not about vengeance or what's right. It's about moderation in the face of power, restraint and compassion for scum like you. And that's why paladins don't fear falling. We don't spend all day looking for ways to prevent ourselves from doing evil and giving into darkness. We actively seek it out. Every time we face evil, we ask ourselves, is this the threat I'm going to give it all up for? Is this what I'm going to give up my ability to help others in the future in order to bring this down now? Is this the evil that I'm willing to forsake my God and my power to stop. What you should be asking yourself now and what you really need to be thinking about is, is what I'm doing something that will make this guy want to fall? Because you should know that once I fall, all those rules that protect you from me are gone. No longer will I be able to be stopped by you, by my order, or by my God. If I give everything, and I mean everything, I will never stop. If you escape me today, I will hunt you down and grab you into the pits of hell myself. Even if that means I have to invoke the wrath of every demon in creation just so they throw open the pit and drag me down where I stand because when they do drag me down I will make sure that my fists are wrapped firmly around your ankles and you go down with me I want you to listen to me now and I mean really listen because hell truly hath no fury like a paladin scorned so I ask you one last time tell me where the other rituals are being held or I swear on all that is high it will fall and fall hard just so I can show you what it is that a paladin truly keeps his code in order to hold back. At this point, the player turned to the DM, who was kind of stunned by the speech, and said, I wish to roll Intimidate. If I were the DM in that moment, I'd go, no, you can't roll it. You automatically succeed. He wets himself in fear and spills everything. Because, frankly, that might be the absolute coolest moment that that character ever gets. That might be the best thing that comes out of that player's mouth. He told about his backstory. He told about his character's philosophy about life. He gave a stunning speech. And he took a player character class that's often maligned for being unable to act outside of the box and found a way to make it act outside of the box to make it step out of all of the rules and expectations of it and change the thing, flip the script entirely. That's incredible. Now, I, for one, would make him roll, but just to see by how much he succeeds, you know? And I might even ignore ones at that point or just declare ones or twenties on this roll. It doesn't matter, you know, double the twenties, whatever. The point is, that was so cool that it should just succeed. 
Now, that's a rule to be very cautious with. That is a very tight line. You don't really want to cross that frequently. It's important that you recognize that this is a game-breaking effect and that it predominantly would affect players who were more capable of creative thinking and stepping outside the box and doing strange and wondrous things. People with theatrical experience, for instance, might have a much better time of being able to evoke that sort of expectation from you. So don't let players abuse that, but... If a player is achieving their awesomest moment and everything seems to be working perfectly for it and you are genuinely convinced that this is a peak moment, an absolute pinnacle, give it to them. Let them have it. And don't let them have it with kind of a dismissal, but say that was incredible. Make it clear that what they're doing is phenomenal. Give them hero points. Whatever you have to do to drive home the fact that, yes, this was incredible. You really brought it home on this and we love it. So one of the big problems with the rule of cool is it's really best used when there isn't a situation in the rules to define what's going on. The worst thing that could happen is someone says, hey, can I do a thing? And you as the DM go, yeah, sure, why not? And then someone else at the table going, uh, because there's already a rule for that and you do this and this and this and this. You as the DM are there to help uh, help control the experience and make it a, a fun one, but you are also there to be an arbitrator of the rules. You are a referee. And the existence of rules is a way to guide the players to what they want to accomplish. And because of that, we don't want to contradict the rules over much. Now, with some games, that's very easy. You know, systems like Fudge or Fate System, for example, there's a lot of leeway as to how things work, and there's not a lot of hard and fast rules for just regular day-to-day behaviors. But then some games kind of have a bloatware type effect. D&D 3rd Edition, we all know that that really started to turn into a giant hydra of rules where if you cut off one head two more would grow in its place pathfinder is expansive in its rules world of darkness even has expansive rules that keep adding on new things new concepts new ideas and when this happens you kind of have to learn to be a rules encyclopedia to not accidentally step over something that's already established in canon for how it should be handled by the rules that said another thing that is really really hard to mediate is when a player is really creative when coming up with their character's backstory. You do want to reward creativity, but there are times that people put things in their backstory just to try and get bonuses and powers, and that's a really, really uh, fine edge to walk. Uh, A number of years ago, I I played with someone who was a poisoner, a a drow poisoner, who worked at manufacturing all of these poisons, and so, as uh, as per their backstory, became immune to poisons. Well, that's a bit too powerful just to hand wave away, especially in 3.5. Yeah, we we were able to figure out that she would have had to um, invest three feats, was it, in order to actually, yeah, in order to actually be immune to poison rules as written. And it wasn't so much that we were objecting to this particular thing being possible, but when it's such a powerful effect, it's such a game-changingly important thing, and it was just handed out based on the fact that the character had in their backstory, that's, that's 
that's a pretty big violation of kind of the trust, especially when offers like that weren't extended to the other players. I guess in a sense, there's sort of a fairness doctrine to it, where if you offer to allow people to have things in their backstories that give them tangible in-game benefits, then you should be sure to extend that offer to everyone. Now, that's an interesting thing because allowing things from backstories has always been a house rule for a long time. Even second edition, I seem to recall not only doing it in my games, but also there being at least one of the splat books that mentions it as a concept. Now, player character kits in second edition were based on backstory, and those were basically add-ons to your class that gave you a small tangible benefit, but they were really meant to be a jumping point as opposed to an actual step in the backstory. And that's the thing, is a lot of these things started out as house rules, but eventually evolved into these full-fledged rules that became permanent fixtures in the game. And background feats and background abilities are a great example of that, because a lot of games now feature them specifically, where you can write into your backstory something, and you're allowed to have so many choices, and you have a, a plethora of things to choose from, like childhood friends, or wealth as a child, whatever. There are, there are a ton of house rules that have become optional rules or canonical rules in more modern systems. I know a bunch of people who have played with character points for years and years and years, and character points have been offered in the rules uh, of different games in as alternates or small things, but uh, in Zenithar's Guide to Everything in 5th edition, it's prominently featured as a great alternate rule, and it works really well if that's the type of thing that you want to do. If you want to give players good bonuses for cool moments, character points are definitely the way to go. Uh, really quick, uh, what are character points exactly in this context? Like, Are they like hero points in some games where for doing cool things you get rewarded with a point that you can then spend on other things? Is that how it works? Uh, or, or like or like the ones in 4th uh, edition? The character points in 5th edition are more like more like character points in Fate. They let you alter the way the story's going in small but tangible ways. Uh, a lot of times it'll be something like, hey, you know, th there's this lock here. What are the odds that it's actually in really poor repair and just rusted out and just a good smack will break it open? Spend a character point. Uh, you know, this one lock, they thought it was stout, but on the inside, it's completely rusted out. That's That reminds me of something that's always been sort of a backburner thing for me as a DM, is uh, when, the, when I hear players speculating about aspects of the game, or even aspects of an individual scene, a lot of times those players will come up with something that I have to admit not only fits super well, but something that I feel like I should have come up with, or that's just cooler than I what I come up with and sometimes I just make that be what happens you know but this is a great example of letting the players have some influence on the story uh, is character points like that where it's explicitly the player characters giving their insight into how the story goes and what they want a situation to turn out and being able to influence it directly. Another good rule of cool way that the players can influence the story is the fairly recent and fairly famous I know a guy rule. David Nett posted on Twitter this idea that, that you can recreate that moment in Empire Strikes Back when Han decides that he can go to Lando for help, but he isn't 100% sure how Lando will receive him. Basically, what you do is, in any situation where it makes sense, a PC can declare, I know a guy. 
and then quickly make a few notes about the NPC and the relationship. Fewer details are usually better at this point because it's in the middle of the game, and that leaves the DM for a little bit of room to, to play around. Upon uh, upon declaration that the NPC exists, when the player characters then go to interact with this character, they make a charisma roll to see how this NPC will in- interact with them. You know, it, it, it's your longtime best friend, and you roll a one on your charisma check. Oh, right, I did cheat you out of your entire life savings and accidentally burned your house to the ground. You still mad about that? <laughs> yeah, or uh, this guy is local sheriff and I'm a bit of a dastardly rogue, but I rolled a 20 and it turns out not only did he always have a soft spot for me, but he always knew I would amount to something and that's why he was so hard on me. So now we have a cordial relationship. He's excited to see that I've taken on this adventuring lifestyle and really put those skills to use somewhere where they're not terrorized the local populace. Point being, it's a great rule and it plays very well off the rule of cool. And I almost feel like there could be an entire suite of rules around letting the player characters announce things that change the character of the game. It can get dangerous to allow the players to have that kind of control, but in some games, that sort of spontaneity really spices up the experience and gives us all a way of influencing the game in interesting ways. I'm reminded in the Powered by the Apocalypse game, a lot of times a successful role will give you a series of things that you can do to influence the encounter. You have a successful attack role. It wasn't a success by a lot, so you can do a little bit of damage to the enemy, or you can harry them, or you can intimidate them, or you can prevent them from doing what they're going to do. Yeah, pick one of those things. Uh, oh crap, I wanted to do damage, but I don't want him to hit me back. And coming up with, with the exact way that your success actually influences the story the story is a great thing that's in that system. So, one of the big things that we do want to talk about with the rule of cool is why we implement. And for me, the reason is because sometimes the players have really cool ideas. A lot of DMs like to think of themselves as the paragons of knowledge of the game, the master of this world, and the ones who the ones who orchestrate the coolest moments. Yes, you've just defeated this grand villain. That is something that I've uh, written down and plotted out for uh, for weeks, months, possibly even years. Well, the rule of cool sometimes lets the players be just as awesome as the DM in this case. In uh, with the I know a guy rule, they come up with an NPC who might be a recurring character throughout the rest of the campaign. And I know that there's a lot of times that I suck at coming up with NPCs, so why not let the player characters explore their really cool ideas? Yeah, all of this uh, builds on the idea of being inclusive with your players and considering their interests and what they want out of the game. Remember, that every time a player tells you something their character does or something about their character's backstory or asks something about the environment, they are giving you a hint about what kind of game they want to play. And that doesn't mean that you should exclusively pander to your player characters or anything like that. You know, be sure to give them some opportunities to be thrown for a loop or to find some unexpected joy in something that turns out a way they were never anticipating or even to suffer hardship or failure but at the same time you want to keep them involved and this rule of cool idea of letting them have their exciting moments of letting them do their unusual things of letting them be unique and 
personalized and different. All of that builds in fantastic ways that can result in amazing gameplay and things that you never expected, things that maybe they never expected, and a better game experience for everyone. My final thoughts on the rule of cool. I've talked to a lot of DMs and I've been in a lot of forums where the prevailing theory is when player characters do something really off the wall, if it goes outside of what is planned, you should punish them. The rule of cool is kind of the opposite. It is the carrot to the stick of punishment. And if you want to modify the player's behavior, if you want to have more fun as a DM, rewarding the players when they do something that you enjoy is a great thing to do. So, up next, what are we talking about? Miniatures! Miniatures? I mean, a lot of times on this show we talk about the ideas that go into into gaming, but we don't often talk about the physical properties and the physical props that we have in a game. And I love minis. I think minis are phenomenal. I like the hobby aspects around them. I like seeing well-done miniatures. I like seeing poorly done miniatures. I like seeing improvised miniatures. I like getting all of the minis and just playing in them later. So, that is what we have up next. Once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. I don't need you, because I'm neato. And I beat you, because I'm awesome. Because I'm awesome by the Dolly Rods. Save versus Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.